when we feed our demons. And basically, what are we feeding them? We're feeding them love and acceptance and compassion. We're, we're relating to them. We're giving them what they actually need. Eventually, we see what's underneath, which is something soft, someone young and sweet, right? some exiled part of ourselves. Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. In our last episode, The Cloak of Shame, we talked about some early sources of shame that people commonly encounter. So religion, school systems, families, there are all these places where shame can get sown early on. And we talked about how some of us are generally more prone to shame. Shame comes on quickly. It kind of might live right below the surface all the time, as opposed to people who experience shame on an occasional basis, and it's more brought on by external situations or circumstances. It's an experience that they have, but it's not a state of being. Mm. And so we thought today we would dive a little more deeply into how do we actually heal shame, especially for those of us who are very prone to shame, like I am, who do Mm. experience shame as a state of being much more frequently if not kind of a background hum Mm -hmm. all the time. And this one story came to my mind because I was thinking about some of the examples I shared in our last episode about those early experiences and sources of shame. And I was thinking about where does shame come up the most for me now? What are the triggers that really activate it? Mm -hmm. And there are many of them. But one is definitely in relationship, because as we talked about, shame is very relational. It has to do with whether or not we feel like we belong and are worthy of love. And so when I spend time with a group of friends, it's not uncommon that I will walk away from that experience with some sources of shame, feeling like... I said too much or overshared in some way or, oh, I didn't respond to that person in the way that I wish I had or I was just in some way annoying or weird or Hmm. too much or too little or boring or obnoxious. Like Hmm. the list goes on. And I've been in a book club for the past, I think, eight years, about eight years at least. And we meet once every two or three months and it's small. There's five of us. And these are, you know, friends that I cherish and value so much. And Mm -hmm. I look forward to our book club meetings so much. Mm. And at the same time, I often find myself after one of our book clubs ruminating and obsessing over something that I feel like I should or should not have said or done and feeling shame. Like Mm. I don't, like there's something not quite right about me that will get me rejected from this lovely group of people who, by the way, are lovely. (laughs) Yes. And that happened to me a few months ago. I think that has been heightened by my experiences of being even more isolated during the pandemic. Like Mm. I'm someone who is more introverted, who does have a tendency to isolate when anxiety and shame are high, but the pandemic compounded all of that. And so every social situation has felt more heightened and higher stakes and more Mm. rare Uh, especially in the earlier years. And I walked away from one of our book club meetings and I felt like I had overshared and I was feeling like really ashamed about that. Mm. 
and just judging myself. And I think I even, yeah, I even cried (laughs) when I got Mm -hmm. home and I was like, wow, this is a big reaction. And no one had, had done or said anything to me along the lines of, wow, you overshared. Wow. That was a bit much, you know, like just they hadn't. And I think about a week later, I was talking on the phone with one of my close friends who is the one who brought me into this book club and introduced me to the other the other people in it. And I was I decided to share with her how I felt after that book club meeting and how that comes up for me. And I think it was good because there had been enough time that I had processed a little bit. It had been like a week, but it was still fresh enough that it felt relevant. And she was so compassionate and she was able to reflect to me you know, A, that that was not how she experienced me and she really didn't think it was how the others experienced me either. And also she was able to share about moments when she feels that way and that it's a normal human experience sometimes to feel self-conscious or to question or regret things that we did or said in a social setting. And she was able just to reflect to me my goodness, like the things that she appreciates about me and, you know, that she appreciates how I, how I listen to other people and how I'm present when all I was doing was focusing on like one or two moments <laughs> when I felt mm-hmm. like I took up too much space or mm-hmm. I overshared. Mm-hmm. And so like Cheryl, something that you and I have talked about, turning towards connection, turning towards someone and sharing our shame when it feels safe and when we have trust that they will be able to hold that and be present with it and connect with it and reflect another view of ourselves is a very powerful part of healing shame. Yes. It's such a good story on so many levels. I'm curious what happened there was that the first moment, the first moments and coming home and crying and feeling that cloak of shame, feeling the intensity and the depth of it. And then some days passed before you had the conversation with your friend. And I'm curious what, what happened in those days? What kind of processing happened on your own? Well, I was able to reflect on why is it that this particular moment in the hours we spent together Mm. (laughs) was really hooking me? Mm -hmm. And part of it was that I was sharing a bit about some things going on in my family. Mm. And I realized that there was a certain level of, I guess, inherited shame around like you shouldn't share things like that with people outside of your family. Yes. So there were these multiple layers of, I guess, the family loyalty contract. Mm -hmm. And then I was seeing myself through these really unkind, critical eyes. And so I was ruminating in those, Mm -hmm. certainly the first day or two after. And then it loosened a little bit. And Something else that's really helpful to me is another voice was able to come in, which is the voice of my therapist, who Mm -hmm. is very good, very, very good at taking that very matter-of-fact tone. Like when I share something about, oh, I'm so ashamed of this thing. And another thing that's come up for me a lot lately is like, I'm back in school now. And so if Mm -hmm. I share something... If I raise my hand and share something in a discussion, I will often spiral afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so it's a similar process of ruminating, obsessing, being very, very, very critical, but then noticing, okay, what's underneath it? Like what's the Mm -hmm. historical Mm -hmm. context? And my therapist's voice saying very matter-of-factly, oh, you – 
you shared something about your life with your friends. Mm. You you felt like you wanted to share something about your life and you did. And that very non-judgmental matter of fact voice will come into my head like just stating in a very simple way what happened without mm-hmm. judgment. Mhm. And that does start to loosen the shame. Mm-hmm alongside then bringing in a compassionate voice, which is harder. Mm. I'm getting, it's a little easier for me to bring in like the neutral, non-judgmental, matter-of-fact voice. And it's harder for me to actually bring in a compassionate voice, but that's also something my therapist does well, Mm. of saying something very warm about that. Yes. Yes. I think that part is so important. Um, that you were able to unhook a bit even before bringing it to your friend. I think both pieces are so important to be able to bring it to somebody who is safe and say it out loud. And like Brené Brown often says, shame can't survive in the light. It feeds off darkness. And also, often first, to have that relationship to your own shame. And this is the thing that I've really been thinking about a lot lately is, so if shame is the fear or the belief that I am not worthy of belonging, I am not worthy of love and belonging. But when we're in shame, we often exile it, right? So we do to shame what our biggest fear is, which is shunning. Mm. We're so afraid of being shunned by the tribe, by people, but then we do our own shunning. We do our own exiling as soon as shame comes in. So this is why exactly what you're describing, Victoria, in those first few days, that first week, naming the shame, right? So how do we heal shame, right? It's in these micro moments. It's not going to be one big event that just heals shame for most people. It's going to be taking it situation by situation, moment by moment, naming the shame. It's such an important step in the healing to say, I'm in my shame. Like, oh, it got me. Here's my opossum. It's taken over me. I'm in the shame dungeon. So as soon as we do that, we, we both separate out from it because we have enough of a witness to name it. So there is another part that is doing the witnessing. We are not completely fused. And, but we also then begin to move toward it, right? So we begin to, and the phrase that keeps coming to me, we begin to claim shame. We claim our own shame. We bring it back in. Because when we don't claim it, when we shun it, when we exile it, it often comes out either externally, it gets projected as blame or anger onto somebody else, or it becomes internalized, which is what you were describing, the rumination, the self-doubt, the critic, intrusive thoughts. So we think of our shame as it feels like this repulsive thing, right? But actually, I think it's the shunned or exiled shame that repels people away because that's what creates the barrier. It's like the unclaimed shame that's just hanging out is a barrier, right? Because it either comes out as blame or anger, which pushes people away, or it becomes this internalized chamber of hell, of the ruminating. And that also prevents people from from coming in, right? And so when we're thinking about also the environments that we grew up in, that it's this exiled shame, it's the unclaimed shame, the unowned shame that so many of us grew up in, that it was just in the field, it was in the pool, but it wasn't the shame itself. That was the problem. If you had a a parent, a caregiver that 
struggled with shame. It wasn't actually the shame itself that was the problem, and it still isn't, right? It's, it's really our shame about the shame, right? It's that next layer that leads to the outward anger or the internal collapse. So when we can name it, we can start to claim it, We can start to get a little closer to being in relationship to it. I think it would be a stretch to say, to suddenly love our shame and hold it like a furry. No, we're not. That's (laughs) that's too big of a leap, right? Because it's still the opossum. You don't really want to cuddle up with an opossum like you would with a puppy dog. But actually underneath the opossum or the armadillo's armor is is the puppy dog, right? Is the thing that just needs our love. It so desperately needs our own belonging, right? To belong to ourselves means to bring in every split off, shunned, exiled part of ourselves to bring them all back in slowly, gently into the fold and the tribe, right, of our own, our own selves. So that we can then also reach out to others. It doesn't stop there, right? There, there is the belonging to ourselves and then reciprocally, not, not one and then the other, like we don't have to just love ourselves fully before we let ourselves be loved, then we also make those reaches, those risks to say, hey, I'm in shame. I got caught. But we're doing that from, to be able to do that, to be able to name the shame that clearly instead of as the morphed, mutated projection of anger or blame, right, indicates that we've already done those first steps of claiming it, even just a little bit, like you're describing. You, you heard your therapist's voice. You, you got curious. What, what was it about that one moment? I was there for hours. What was it about that one moment that hooked me? So the curiosity gets online, immediately activates some mobility inside of us, moves us a little bit out of that, of the collapse. Right. And then the therapist's voice comes in, which is now your own internalized voice. And you're not quite at the compassionate, come snuggle up with me, shame, but you are at the being able to, to say, huh, okay, you shared something personal. There is that. And then from that more integrated place, you then took that next risk of having the conversation with your friend. reason that Cheryl is talking about the opossum is because we talked about the opossum as a symbol for shame in our last episode. (laughs) And when that image of the opossum came to me before our last episode, I was Googling. I was like, I think I remember certain facts about opossums, but I'm not an expert. Let me see if I Mm -hmm. am remembering correctly. And this video of this woman who rescued a baby opossum came up on YouTube and Now, I'll just start by saying, like, it's not a good idea for people to keep opossums as pets generally. Like, that's not ideal. But this opossum was so cuddly. Like, (laughs) this woman was just cuddling. I mean, she rescued it when it was a baby. Like, its mother and siblings had died. It was really, Mm. really sick. It was going Mm. to die. Mm. She took it in and rescued it and Mm. raised it from the time it was a baby. Mm -hmm. And it was the cuddliest little... (laughs) opossum that she was just showering with kisses and I thought wow this is such a Mm. image of embracing something that we typically see as Mm 
repulsive. And, you know, it really made me think about how when I'm in deep shame, what I really feel like is a little child. Like I really feel like I'm back to being eight years old and feeling so unworthy for some Mm. reason. Yes. And so small and separate and lonely and scared. And it's a little child part. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing how when we don't claim it, as you were saying, to notice what happens. Like for one thing, that will just entrench me deeper in the cycle of I have to be perfect and I'm going to pull away from people. So I'll start going like, next time I'm only going to talk about these topics and I'll only let myself talk for this amount of time, like getting really rigid around how can I be perfect to avoid Mm -hmm. being defective and unworthy of, of belonging and connection. And I even noticed, you know, now that I'm back in school, I walked into one of my classes. We just started up recently. And there was one girl who had been in a previous class with me. And I said, oh, hi, it's so nice to see you again. And she kind of like brushed me off a little bit. Like she wasn't super friendly back. And then we had worked on a group project together in the past. And the professor said, there's going to be a big project group project this semester. If you know someone you want to work with, let me know. And she immediately turned to two other people like sitting right near me and asked them if they wanted to work with her. And I just felt so rejected. And the next time I went into class, I was like, I'm not saying hello to anyone. Mm. I'm I'm sitting in the corner and I'm just going to read my book and I'm not putting myself out there again. So it's amazing. And then when it comes to sharing, you know, it's like if we're not claiming it at all, if we're not processing it a little bit, if we're not bringing it to therapy or spending some time thinking about it, what I watch myself doing when I share it with someone else is I'm sharing it more from a place of like reassurance seeking and yes. I'm curious to hear if you have any thoughts on that, on the way that we share it, you know, like Yes. We we have to be discerning about who we share it with. Like I think Brene Brown has said, you might only have one or two people in your life who are really safe to share your yes. shame with. Mm-hmm. And there can and be a way we that we it. share it. Yeah. So I'm curious yes. if you have thoughts on that. Well, it's so important. It's exactly what I'm pointing to is that if if it's if it's a child, which I think that's really important to bring in that piece that when we're in shame, it is a child state. And so as I often talk about in my work, we, we do have to tend to that child. Otherwise we are handing the child over. We're out, we're just, here you go, outstretched arms. You take it, you fix it. Mm. You make me feel better. You give me validation. Now, that doesn't do anything positive because handing over your child to somebody else not only feels terrible to the other person, nobody nobody wants responsibility for somebody else's pain and wounds. That's a really different place from coming with having done a piece of your own inner work around it and just kind of saying, can you accompany me? This is what I'm struggling with, but I'm not expecting you to fix it for me. But also, you might get a temporary relief of, no, you were fine. You didn't do that. But then we're in the kind of bottomless bucket realm where it goes in, but it just falls right back out because, again, you haven't, you haven't claimed it. You haven't tended. It's just kind of roaming out there in exile, begging for, for other people to validate. And it, but it will never work. And then it becomes sometimes a self-perpetuating cycle where you do end up repelling people because, and this can happen in any relationship, right? In friendship, I think it happens a lot in friendship, actually, where we're hoping that a friend will validate us in some way. And so we're, we're kind of perpetually handing over that child part. But it can certainly happen in 
our intimate partnerships. I see a lot of grown adults who have very close relationships with their parents, but also verging on enmeshment where they're talking every day on the phone and their mom is still the person that they turn, that they just keep handing over any anxiety, any dread, any fear, any problem, any shame. And it's like on one level, like, oh, that's so sweet. You talk to your mom every day. But on another on another level, it it just perpetuates um, the wound because it prevents the person from actually stepping in and owning and taking responsibility, showing up, learning how to to bring some kindness, right, to these parts. Because I think, you know, what, what you're saying about the woman in the video with the opossum and and it was all cuddly and sweet and furry, that we learn over time that our what we call our demons, right? And this is something that I teach a ton about and so many people teach a lot about and the practice that I mentioned before, feeding your demons, this is the entire premise of it, that that when we feed our demons, and basically what are we feeding them? We're feeding them love and acceptance and compassion. We're, we're, we're relating to them. We're giving them what they actually need underneath how it's presenting. And that when we do that enough times, consistently, long enough, Eventually, we see what's underneath, which is, you know, something soft, someone, someone young and sweet, right? Some exiled part of ourselves, and that there is an ally. That there's that there's always an ally. That learning to relate to our demons and feed our demons and the, feeding the shame demon if we can penetrate, if we can love it enough, if we can relate to it enough, it softens, right? Like the sharp teeth turn smooth, the horns fall off the head. It's like it undergoes a transformation. Like in a fairy tale, like in mythology, we see this represented, right? We have forgotten how to read myths and fairy tales symbolically, but we do see it. You know, something starts out, even the classic of the frog prince, right? Looks like a frog, but when he gets love, he turns into this beautiful prince. So it's it's like that symbolically where our demons transform into allies. And it's not easy work, right? And, and depending on how layered your shame is and how bound up it is in trauma, it's not easy work. It's not easy to, to relate in that way. But at the same time, if you're not doing it, if you're not even trying, nothing will shift, right? So, so learning a practice like the Feeding Your Demons, and I highly recommend the book. It's a very readable book, and it's a very doable practice, even on one's own. You don't need to be in therapy to commit to a practice like that, to, to just see what happens. What happens when I have this relationship, when I do this kind of exercise with this part of me that has occupied so much space in my life, so much negative space? What might transform when I start to turn and look at it, have a relationship to it, and actually give it what it needs. It's so radical because I think so many of us grow up with a very punitive mindset because we grow up in 
especially like in the United States, like our incarceration system, you know, our mm. quote unquote justice system, mm. our conceptions of hell in Christianity. And mm. I mean, we grow up with these very punishing ideas about, you know, you should be perfect. And if you're not perfect, you deserve to be punished. Mm. And we have these authority figures who, who, prop themselves up as being perfect. And then we find out, oh, the pastor, you know, <laughs> yes. has had six mistresses and the priest is abusing children. And yes. the Supreme Court judge has been accepting large amounts of money and gifts and vacations from wealthy people. I mean, but somehow <laughs> we think that we are the only defective ones, you know, that that the vast majority of other people are not making any mistakes, but we mm. are so flawed and broken. Mm. And we deserve punishment. Mm -hmm. So many of our systems, like I, I took a class in um, introduction to substance abuse counseling over the summer, and we did a unit on harm reduction, learning about practices like giving people clean needles or having, you know, clinics where people can safely administer drugs to themselves. And, mm. and this is something that feels so radical to like an average American, I think, because we're just used to like, oh, you messed up because you're bad and you deserve whatever happens to you now. And you don't deserve any help or care. Mm. And and we should never build systems with a mindset of accepting that people are not always going to be perfect and people are going to make mistakes and and all of these things. Like our systems should be built for perfection, that mm. expectation. Mm. Yes. It's a really good example with the pastor and the priest and the judge because it's exactly what we're talking about, what happens when you don't claim parts of yourself mm. and it goes into shadow. It doesn't just go away. It comes out in this very, for in those examples, very sick, very mutated, very harmful ways. So yes, we need an entire revamping of all of our, our systems that say, we're all imperfect. We all have sexual needs, and that's not something that we need to vilify. That's part of being human, right? We all struggle. And I think slowly, very, very slowly, that is that mindset, those messages are floating in. But still, a lot of this is so deeply ingrained that even if you don't believe it intellectually, it still lives in your body. I also think that's why it's healing the more we have representation of different types of people and people mm -hmm. with different experiences and people sharing those different experiences, yes, the more we can see that we're not alone. Like that's why it matters to have Queer Eye on Netflix or have Heartstopper. You know, Heartstopper, we love Heartstopper. Yes, um, I love May Martin's work, like Sap and Feel Good, um, that touch on all sorts of layers of identity and ways that people of different identities and communities have been shamed. And so just having that, that awareness, that representation, that celebration, you know, even um, Sounds True put out a webinar series on internal family systems with uh, Richard Schwartz, the founder, mm -hmm. talking to, uh, he talked to Elizabeth Gilbert for one session. He talked to Jonathan Van Ness for one session. And Jonathan <laughs> yeah. Van Ness talked about being part of the LGBTQIA community and also having a history of addiction and being really ashamed of mm -hmm. the inner part of him that wanted to do meth, wanted to do drugs, had compulsive sexual behavior. And he said in the conversation, I even feel shame coming up now just talking mm. about it. Yes. But I know it's important to do that. Mm. And so. So brave. 
I'm careful about the media I consume now and how much shame is embedded in it versus how much honesty and truth and celebration and love is embedded in it. Mm. How are people of different identities included and treated in the media that I'm consuming? Well, that was one reason I loved Queer Queer Eye so much was regardless of their sexual orientation and gender orientation, they were just, they're just such kind, accepting, inclusive people. And I had so rarely seen that represented anywhere in the mainstream. And it was so, like, I will only watch shows where people are kind, like Ted Lasso, right? And his, that kind of character, that's just good and kind and trying to do things a little bit differently. I I have such a low tolerance. It's interesting you're saying that, Victoria, because I've said it before, but I don't know that I've articulated it quite so clearly about in terms of why there's so much media I will not watch. If people are shaming, exclusive, mean, I I have no tolerance for it. None. I just won't watch it. But I think that's far and free between, although I think it is becoming more readily accessible. I think there's such a hunger for that. And it's and it's starting to be met with Queer Eye, Heartstopper, Ted Lasso. Um, never sure, have I ever. Never have I ever. I mean, I, it came to mind and I was like, were they kind? Well, but I think, I, at least for me, it's helpful to see people being all the ways that humans are. Yeah. Yeah. She's so messy. (laughs) Yeah. But she, she is trying and learning. And I mean, honestly, even with Queer Eye, I sometimes feel ambivalent about the whole idea of a makeover. Like even though they are doing it in this much more evolved way, like sometimes they are kind of, if they walked into my home and were making jokes about every aspect of my life, like the way that they do, even though they are being funny and they do care and people usually seem okay with it. They know what they're signing up for. My shame would be like off the charts if they were walking around like, um, excuse me, like this is what your kitchen looks like. Like I would be a puddle of shame. So it's complicated, I think. Yes. You know? yes. Uh, and any media is complicated because it's trying to you know, get your attention and be over the top a lot of the time. So it's all complicated, but. Yeah, but I think the overarching, what what you're bringing in, Victoria, I think is so important, even if it's not a perfect re- representation of kindness, that that there's so much more available in terms of representation. And yeah. even around mental health, even OCD and um, autistic spectrum, right? That even five years ago, I don't think people were talking nearly as much about spectrum, about OCD, about anxiety. And I think the pendulum is swinging a little bit. I see it in my, in my kids' schools, um, especially in middle school and high school, where it's almost cool to have that badge of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, which medication are you on? No, mm-hmm. because I have anxiety and I'm on this. Well, I have OCD and I'm, and that's, I don't know what that is. Um, but I think that's what happens. Pendulum swing. Everything's now out in the open. Not everywhere, right? It's <laughs> we live in we live in Boulder, Colorado, not just Colorado. We live in Boulder, Colorado. It's a very accepting place. You know, if you're on certain places in the East Coast, if you're on certain places in the West Coast, there's a lot that is going to be accepted, but nevertheless, Almost everybody has access to social media, and there you see, you see yourself, mm-hmm. and that is incredibly shame-reducing. So, so, all these different layers for healing shame—that um, inner layer of claiming your own shame. What does it mean to belong to yourself? What does it mean to belong to your smaller tribe, your friendship tribe, your work tribe? people who are safe where you can start to um, let them know, let them in on those scarier places in your heart and take those risks when things come up. You know, what does it mean to belong to the world, to the earth, to nature? 
I was thinking when you were telling the story at the beginning, for some reason, and I was sitting here with my eyes closed, for some reason, what came into my being were these very early points of connection. And I saw them like points of light, like rays of light. Like, you know, when you're learning geometry or math and there's like point A and point B and there's a line in between. It was like that, like a little dot on me and then a line and then a little dot on the places where I was claimed and loved really early. And what a profound impact that had on me and how it outweighed the hard stuff. And I think, I don't think, I know, and we know from trauma, we know that if there are enough reflectors of goodness, right, we're going to take that in. And that's what formed the primary inner template or landscape inside of me. And so the first one I saw was, was my dog, Duchess, who I've talked about. And was my first word, uch. So really my first most potent, poignant attachment figure was my German shepherd, Duchess, who I felt so deeply connected to. And these are points of connection, right? These points of attachment. And when we are connected and attached, we feel safe and we feel loved and we feel we're in, we're in the, the big wide network of, of trust and, and belonging. And there's really no room for shame there. Right? Shame has no place there. And so I saw Duchess. And on another point, I saw my grandparents like felt them. I don't know. It just all came up when you were talking. And then in another point was water. It was, we had a swimming pool, but also we lived near the ocean and how held. I also learned to swim before I learned to walk. I was always in the pool and I had floaties on. I was, I mean, I was tiny. We have photos of me like a baby. I was just a baby, but I was Hmm. like, I was a total water baby, loved the water. And I still do, as everybody knows. I, I love the water. And it's a place of connection. It's a place where I am held, where I belong. Um, my brother, Josh, who was my next, or the middle child, I'm the youngest, and there's so many more, right? I, 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 I was and am so blessed with so many radiant points of connection. And everybody has, has something. Everybody has some place inside. Oh, well, another one was God because I went to that Jewish preschool so early in my life and and met God. And I feel so lucky. It was just such a pure encounter for me. And it wasn't like an old man with a beard in the sky. It wasn't that. It was just a knowing. It was just a knowing that God is here and that God loves me and God is around me and I am God and and that God is in all of these points of, of light and connection. And that's not to say I haven't struggled. <laughs> we, we, I've, I've shared plenty about my struggles with anxiety and panic attack and that I don't still struggle. It's not that I don't struggle. It's not that shame hasn't come up in my life. And there were years in those middle school years when it was particularly pronounced. I wanted to change every single thing about myself. I remember staring into the mirror when I was in seventh or eighth grade 
and I hated my brown eyes and mm. I was staring in the mirror and I thought, did I detect one little fleck of green? Could my eyes be turning green? And I was so, and I remember calling my best friend, Jessica, like, I, I think my eyes are turning green. <laughs> I so desperately did not want brown eyes. I hated my curly hair. I hated, I, I just thought I was so ugly. It's so sad, right? So sad. Those are such hard years. So it's not that I haven't had that too. But I think underneath it all, there was this, there were these waters. There was this other place that I was so lucky to have in abundance, but I know, and I know from working with people for so many years that we all can make contact with those points of connection, even if it's just one, even if it was just one aunt or one grandmother or one animal or one tree. And that we, we grow from there and we heal from there and we widen our capacity and our awareness of our, of our belonging, of our interconnectedness, of the place where we cannot be shunned. We cannot be exiled because it's just where we all are. thinking about what we were talking about earlier around handing off our shame, not claiming it. I feel like there are so many layers of shame, as we've been saying, and one of mine is feeling ashamed when I do that, mm, <laughs> when I I'm hand so off the shame. I'm so glad you're bringing that in. Yes. And sometimes shame and guilt which is a little different, will come up because we genuinely have done something that goes against our values or isn't how we want to show up in the world or in our relationships. And mm -hmm. so I'm just curious about your response for people who already feel such shame, even for things that don't call for it, that, are, that really don't call for it, when we actually do mess up, when we're not behaving the way we want to. What are your thoughts on working with shame in those moments? Mm. I'm so glad you're bringing it in because I'm certain that if you felt a twinge when I was saying that of shame, that other people did too, listening. And I'm going to do what I often do when I'm working with somebody is I'm going to put it back, give it back to you. How might you respond to that feeling of shame of, oh, I, I have given myself, I have handed myself over. I don't always take responsibility. No. How, how might you respond if a friend was bringing that to you? Well, one is with the compassion of our common humanity, as Kristen Neff talks about a lot in her work, is just the reminder that we are genuinely all imperfect. Yes. And I'm not the only one who's messed up in that way. Yes. And I try to also turn to that curiosity around what part is this? What historical context is there <laughs> underneath this? Mm -hmm. And also, if I really do feel like I've messed up, like just last week, I felt like I was modeling anxiety in a way to my younger sibling that I didn't like. Mm. And she's 17. And I actually just said to her, you know, I, I feel like this weekend I was in an anxious place and it affected my mood and things like that. And it probably affected my interactions with you. 
And I'm just wondering how that impacted you. Hmm. I don't know if that's a good thing to do or not, but I just decided to try to just turn to her with curiosity and not from a place of like fix it for me, but just like I have yeah. this fear that it that it about how it could impact. And I just to even acknowledge, like yes. I realized that this happened and I'm curious how that impacts you. Did it make you more anxious? Or were you able to separate from it and see it as my anxiety? Mm. And I just asked her that. It's so good. Victoria. And I love both of your responses to bring some compassion, our common humanity. Of course, we all do that. We all do everything, right? None of us is above any of it. We all hand ourselves over. We all abdicate responsibility. We all do it. And then the curiosity, which the curiosity is, as I said, so often the mobilizer, it shifts us into a different part of our nervous system, our brain to get curious when we do mess up. I mean, I don't even know if it's messing up when we're just, we're human. Oh, I was in more of my anxiety this weekend. I don't, I don't consider that a, a mess up. I was just more in my anxiety this weekend around my siblings. Huh, I wonder what that was like for you, right? And I think so often when we get mired in shame, it is in itself a protector and a way that we then avoid, it yeah. then furthers our abdication. We avoid then coming out of it. And it's like a protector. It prevents us from saying, whoa, I'm, I'm so sorry. If, if it necessitates an, 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 an apology or wow, I, I was doing that. But it's like these layers that can come out as anger and then it and then it kind of flips into shame and I'm the worst person ever. But neither of those actually serve anybody. Right. Right. If we have truly messed up, we sometimes go to anger and blame, and sometimes we go to shame. And I'm a failure and I'm a loser. But those are kind of two sides of the same coin, right. neither of which brings us into, okay, like a, a true remorse, a true softening, a true, wow, I'm, I'm so sorry I did that. And that's when healing happens for everybody. Yeah, I was talking about a shame moment with my therapist and she was like, I wonder if there's something you can say to yourself when you're really deep in that, like, I'm good inside. Like, I am good. Yes. And I was like, oh, I can't even, I don't even know if I can say that because mm. I feel so much attention on the ways that I'm not always good and, and hang-ups around, around being good. And we came up with the sentence, we are all everything. Mm. But we also circled back around to, you know, this idea of she was like, can you reclaim your goodness? Like that maybe you actually are good. Mm -hmm. And it's an, it's an interesting thing that I'm exploring, you know, around like, yeah, just like the, like you always talk about the layers and spirals, spirals and circling around like, Yeah. The shame has really separated me from a sense of feeling like I am basically good because yes. I'm so aware of everything else. And that reclamation of goodness mm. is interesting to mm. me. <laughs> and having a both and. Yes. Right? That this is one of the prayers I love in Judaism that we can say every morning, Elohai Neshamash and Atata Bi Tehorahi. Oh God, the soul you have given me, she is good. And it is expressed in the in the she for some reason in Judaism. Oh God, the soul, the soul you have given me, she is good. And we start our day naming and recognizing the that fundamental place of goodness that always exists. The soul whatever we want to call it. 
And then we go through our day and we mess up a bunch of times because we're human, right? Like my husband and I got into such a ridiculous argument yesterday and boy, did we mess up. And Mm -hmm. I came into his studio later and we hadn't worked it out. And I just came in and I was like, oops. (laughs) And he goes, oops. And I was like, we really messed up. And he was like, yeah. (laughs) You know, so like that happens a lot. We mess up. So can we hold the both and we mess up all the time and we make repairs all the time and we are good. Yeah, it's like what what I told you about my dentist last year. My dentist was telling me, um, you know, you really need to floss every day. Like she asked me, are you flossing every day? I said, no. She said, okay, you have a little bit of gingivitis. You really need to floss every day. And then right before she left the room, she just offhandedly said, and you actually have really nice teeth. And something about that shifted. Mm. Like the appointment before, six months before, she had been like, okay, you really want to take care of your gums because all these bad things can happen if you don't, et cetera. And, you know, I mean, there's there's definitely, it's definitely important to understand the consequences of our actions and the reality of situations. But it wasn't until she said, you have really nice teeth, mm-hmm. but something deep in me. And by the way, like my teeth are crowded and a little bit crooked and kind of yellow. So I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Right? Like they're not perfect teeth. They're not straight white, perfect teeth. Mm-hmm. But something, she saw something in them. And something deep in me went, I want to take care of them. Yeah. Because she said that they're nice. Yes. And then I started flossing like every day. I mm. mean, once in a while. <laughs> I don't, but for months now. Like it's not this, it's not like an, a brand new thing. Yes. And um, that's a habit that I, had really struggled with and and um yeah there are multiple things that go into that maturity and you know not having dental insurance right now but there's deeply that sense of she said I have nice teeth and yes. I carry that with me now that reminder of how powerful it can be to not just be like constantly trying to scare and punish myself into good behavior but to actually bring some of that warmth and that like, well, but actually you're good. Actually, when you raised your hand and shared that, you actually Mm -hmm. have a really nice instinctive wanting to share and connect with people. Yes. You know? Yes. And how that feeds on itself Mm -hmm. and how that seed of seeing the goodness in your teeth, right? The good, she saw something, she saw something good and that, from that place, it's like the Carl Rogers unconditional positive regard in, ther- in psychotherapy, right? He was like the father of total positive acceptance, positive psychology, really seeing and accepting the person. That from that place, we are much more likely to make change from the place of you don't have to change anything. You don't have to fix anything. And then we bring ourselves back into to tie it back in, we we then bring ourselves back into our own belonging, right? We we then want to take care of ourselves, want to tend to ourselves, want to claim ourselves and love ourselves and be with, be kind to these bodies, these teeth, whatever it is. I think that's a great, little prompt to leave off with because highly sensitive people, I think we are so aware of all the layers, all the complexities, every possible threat, negative facet, shadow side, all of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it can make us more susceptible to shame to be so aware of everything. Because if you're always aware, then you can always know better, right? Yes. So what's your excuse for messing up? You knew better. You saw it. Yes. And so I think it's a great prompt for anyone listening to think about something where shame comes up and is there a way to see it as you actually have a really nice 
dot, 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 you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. Thank Thank you, Victoria. Thank Thank you, you. Cheryl. Thank you to Jarrett Farkas for the use of our beautiful new theme music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe or follow, leave us a review, share it with a friend, and consider joining our Patreon, where we share regular bonus content and also host virtual meetups. Our next meetup will be for the Autumn Equinox on September 24th. Visit patreon.com slash gathering gold to learn more. 